when a reported Chinese spy balloon was caught flying over the continental United States in early February, there was an explosion of media coverage on the event. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill and the American public were demanding answers amidst the concerning revelation, even after the balloon was shot down off the coast of North Carolina. These events led to the cancellation of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's upcoming trip to China and even more tension in the American-Chinese bilateral relationship. China has maintained that it was a simple weather surveillance balloon which veered off course, but the event has remained in the public eye, which leads us to the question of how we got here and what may happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst today is Kieran Buzonson. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. And focusing on the international aspect today is Aya Gusimalsit. Hi, Aya. Hi, nice to meet you guys. Thank you for coming on the show, Aya. I want to just start off with some background information for our listeners, guys, of this topic, even though it's been in the public media's attention for a while now. Starting off, I guess I'll ask, where was the balloon launched from? Yeah, so, I mean, as far as current intelligence and reports indicate, um, the most likely place it was launched from was Hainan Island, which is an island in the South China Sea, close to northern Vietnam, um, where they've been launching these balloons from uh, for years. Um, and it crossed over the Aleutian Islands, which are a chain of islands off the coast of Alaska, over northern Alaska and down um, into BC in Canada and the Yukon, and then finally being spotted in northern Montana by commercial airlines. And of course, once it was spotted, there was immediate concerns about shooting the plane down and things like that, which the Biden administration held off on doing so. What territories do we believe it crossed over? Just most of the continental United States, Kieran? Yeah, so again, it sweeped up kind of to the north to the Arctic Circle, so northern Alaska around Barrow, then down through Yukon, which is a northern territory um, in Canada, and then BC, which is where Vancouver is located, and then down into the central United States, into Montana, Idaho, um, where a lot of our critical um, ICBM infrastructure, our intercontinental ballistic um, arsenal, is located in a lot of major Air Force bases. Mm -hmm. To follow up on that, do you believe that was the intended purpose of the balloon? Kieran, to spot those locations of those missile silos and ICBM locations? I think in the moment when the news story first broke, that's probably what most people thought. Um, it makes sense as far as a, you know, an espionage target is concerned. Um, however, in the weeks since um, <laughs> the affair kind of broke, China has very quietly admitted to its original um, intended destination being Guam and Hawaii, which are also critical military installations for the U.S. We have a lot of Marine Corps bases there. A lot of um, Navy, Navy bases there as well, which are obviously all pointed toward China in the event of a possible conflict with Taiwan. Um, so while it was clearly directed at military installations, I don't think they meant particularly for them for the balloon to go over Montana initially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're mentioning that, Kieran, and I'm seeing that the balloon drifted off course potentially and things like that are wrong in its original intended destination. Because of that, why do you think the Chinese used a balloon even though it may have been less reliable than other um, surveillance methods. Yeah, so, I mean, that's one of the questions a lot of people have been asking. You know, it's, the, it's 2023. Why are people using balloons? We have satellites. Um, you, you can have on-the-ground intelligence assets. To put it simply, balloons are cheap, um, and they're actually fairly maneuverable. They don't have a, a thermal signature, meaning it's really difficult to hit them with heat-seeking missiles, whether air-to-air -air or um, ground-to-air. And they can get a bit closer than satellites, so you can have a, a better resolution. Um, and they can fly higher than most commercial aircraft, so you can kind of keep them away. 
Uh, but simply, it's it's a cheap, relatively maneuverable option that gets higher resolution um, than a satellite. I see. Mm-hmm. Knowing all that and these things, I think I kind of tried to get into it earlier, but I was going to ask to follow up on that. Um, why did the U.S. wait to shoot it down, even though it was discovered in Montana? And as I kind of looked at the intro, they waited until it's off the coast of North Carolina. Yeah, so I mean, this was one of the very controversial things about the story. Republicans immediately lambasted Biden for waiting, you know, screaming national security threats. It's a bit complicated. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to say whether or not I think it was the right decision, but the justification coming from uh, the the administration was a fear of debris hitting civilian targets on the ground. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a secondary concern was they wanted to recover as much hardware as possible from this when it got shot down. Right. So if you shoot down um, a balloon that was hovering at sixty thousand feet over Montana, it's going to hit the hard ground or land on the side of a mountain, uh, which makes it difficult to recover and you know breaks up more of the hardware versus shooting down off the coast of North Carolina where it can land relatively softly um, in somewhat shallow waters to be um, retrieved by Navy divers. Mm-hmm. So the intent was both to preserve any collateral damage and be able to um, get what they could from the balloon in the aftermath. Yeah, and I think a secondary concern as well was um, wanting to see where and how it moved. Right? Mm-hmm. What installations are they going over? What patterns of flight does it have? Um, which parts of the United States is it spending the most time over? Um, just kind of observing its path before shooting it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an attempt to gain inf- more information was seen the reason why overall. Yeah. Turning back to you, Aya, as our international analyst, what was the Chinese response to this, uh, at least initially, to the response of the U.S. shooting the balloon down? Well, China kind of proved that their intentions were pure about the whole situation, and they seemed sort of upset, and they believed that the U.S. overreacted about shooting down their balloon. They thought that the U.S. used unnecessary force when it came to, like, shooting down the balloon, even though they were sort of mad about the U.S. believing that their balloon was a suspected spy balloon, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think we'll try and get into that more later. I, uh, I want to get more into the Chinese response, especially how that affects the Chinese-U.S. relationship. Yeah. But I do want to come back to the more important part of the criticisms you mentioned earlier, Kieran, about the controversial parts of the U.S. weight and concern it down, and ask how this incident has affected American domestic politics. Yeah, so I mean, obviously it's caused quite an uproar um, with national security debates. Um, Republicans immediately used it as a stick to whack Democrats over with. Um, and it kind of got culture warified, like a lot of issues do. It's difficult because these balloon flights, these espionage balloons, one, we have them as well, and we send them over China. Um, so we're not exactly, you know, um, standing on a moral pedestal here. But also this happened during the previous administration, which was Republican. So both parties are, you know, relatively complicit in allowing these uh, balloons to fly over the United States. Um, during the Trump administration, there were at least two to three that were known, but weren't, you know, made major news stories that flew over parts of Texas, Florida, and around uh, the Gulf of Mexico over U.S. military installations and oil sites. So, you know, it's not a new phenomenon. I think it's just the publicity of this particular story is, is kind of what makes it stand out. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you have your typical, you know, partisanship um, in action when it comes Mm to, you know, debating the actual substance of how long it took to shoot this down. And you mentioned, like, similar flights happening during the Trump administration, Kieran. Um, But initially, at least, the Trump administration claimed, like, nothing would have, that nothing of the sort happened under their watch, or at least that they knew of to a certain extent. Is that, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think several Trump officials were, you know, kind of caught on ambush interviews. over uh, on, on television from journalists um, in the story. Trump obviously himself came out and said, you know, this never happened. Um, and if I was in charge, I would have shot down immediately, blah, blah, blah. 
but several officials who are you know, who are present working in the current administration that were um, working in various defense and intelligence agencies during the last administration said, yeah, they're basically just lying through their teeth. Um, this happened as well. They just kept it more on the down low. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned like the difference between this and the previous incidents, even if they had t- also flown over mm-hmm. major military installations in the American Southeast, Florida, Texas, the Gulf, is the publicity about this. Do you think that can signal a major change in the American-Chinese relationship? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, tensions have been rising with China quite a bit in recent years, and particularly within the last six to eight months. Obviously, it represents a major fracture. Um, our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, canceled an entire visit to China um, that was supposed to rectify problems with the Pentagon and the PRC's high command communicating during times of crisis, right? So um, we have, you know, we have a, a phone line that directly puts the president of the U.S. and the Russians um, on the same call if they need to if there's a crisis, or you also have the, the chief of staff at the Pentagon communicating with high commands around the world just so, you know, it's, it's called deconfliction, right? So if we have aircraft or ships in a certain location, we let that other military know that these are in that area so we avoid collisions and fomenting a kind of, you know, an art, artificial diplomatic crisis. When Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last fall, we didn't get any calls back from the Chinese, and that was a huge problem. Because when you have carrier task forces, you have jets doing sorties, right? There can be collisions. You can also have, you know, um, you know, all sorts of accidents can happen that can set off a huge um, major diplomatic spat or even a war, right? So part of his visit was to actually rectify that problem, and it's, it was it was a big deal that that got canceled. Mm-hmm. Similar to this, you mentioned that the United States has been stepping up to a certain extent its air defense system and people wondering how we are able to let this happen especially if it's happened repeatedly over the last two administrations yeah so i mean part of the um part of the and this gets back to your question of like why is this story a little bit more public than the other ones this balloon was flying low enough that it could be spotted by people on the ground in commercial airlines uh to put it frankly i think they knew that there were those other balloon flights had happened like in the trump administration and probably earlier in this administration too but they just hadn't been seen visibly by commercial pilots. Also, balloons have a fairly small radar cross-section, right? So for those who aren't familiar, different aircraft have different cross-sections with radar. When it hits the aircraft and reflects back, it you know, reflects back in a certain size and shape, right? Balloons have a fairly small one, so it makes it difficult to detect with radar, which is calibrated for transcontinental bombers, which are fairly large, or um, fighter aircraft. So there's a very different signature that our that NORAD, which is kind of the joint Canadian-American airspace defense uh, command structure, is calibrated for, right? So that's how it's kind of able to slip past um, some of the systems. And part of the reason why we and the Chinese use these balloons. Yeah. So. And you mentioned NORAD and like the joint, I mean, Canadian and American airspace, but there's also been instances of U.S. jets patrolling in the Canadian airspace now. Correct. And um, also Canadian jets patrolled over the U.S. side of Lake Huron uh, recently as well. Um, NORAD is basically uh, a Cold War era institution um, that was founded to, you know, yeah, increase cooperation between the U.S. and Canada for joint airspace defense of, of North America. Um, that's why you saw F-22s shooting down objects over Yukon and Canadian F-16 shooting objects down over Lake Huron. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. well, thank you for that information, Karen. I also want to come back to the points you made about the worrying tensions in the U.S.-Chinese relationship, and come back to you, Aya, and talk about. What are the changes have been in the Chinese-U.S. relationship since then and how that can affect other important matters such as the trade situation between the United States and China? Well, speaking about the trade situation, uh, it says that the leading trade associations and their members have been closely analyzing the tensions between the U.S. and China after like the whole incident with the balloons. 
Uh, and they're just saying that it is another reason to diversify the manufacturing because if, like Kieran said, there's always been tensions between the U.S. and China. And just speaking of it from like the trade point of view, it's it'll be difficult to like move on if stuff like this continues to happen. If the communication between the U.S. and China continues to become like difficult, but uh, a lot of the companies are interested in revised N NAFTA agreement to bring more manufacturing to the states and leaving China alone is just risky because it is an important trade partner and for several reasons like access to goods skill sets and all that and so like making China like not being on good terms with China would severely harm us and other states and other countries I believe and the situation with China doesn't necessarily make this shift happen any faster but it just kind of highlights the importance of it and all. So the importance of the U.S. and Chinese relationship, uh, the tensions being is why this event has maybe gained the attention of these economic experts and things like that. Because if tensions continue to rise between the two major powers, then of course economically they'll be affected because of how important that relationship is to the global economy. Yeah. Do mm -hmm. you, you mentioned the risk to the global economy. Do you want to go into any more on that of what the risks are specifically, Aya? So, as we all know, China is a big like trade partner for not only us, but for several other countries. And if the U.S. falls into bad terms with China, it'll severely affect us. And then there are also other countries who are kind of just on edge about the whole situation. And they know that like if anything happens between the U.S. and China, it'll end up, they'll kind of be like the collateral of the whole situation. And it just kind of makes it bad for everybody else because in China and the U.S. are like obviously like major countries. And if tensions between those two countries is just continues to increase or escalate, it kind of makes it difficult for everyone else to get involved in trade. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you specifically, as the international analyst, like the Asian response to the incident mm -hmm. and more the concern of people about both sides being unable to temper the hawks, so to speak, on there. Well, the, the Pentagon was uh, claimed that the balloon sort of flew over sensitive areas for about a week it was and I think Kieran was talking about it for a little bit um, and how they were just kind of suspicious about the whole situation and when it wasn't until Beijing afterwards like after the U.S. shot down the balloon that they said it was just a balloon that flew off course and I think they were mentioning how um, they were just analyzing weather or trying to get weather reports about a situation. Yeah. I want to turn back to you Kieran just for a second and look at other instances that since this event came to the attention of the public and the media to a certain extent there's been similar instances of unidentified flying objects going down and like records of these being shot down and things have are any of these instances discoveries of like other Chinese balloons so to speak yeah I mean so this is kind of the fun part of the story um, we don't really know um, what any of those objects were that were shot down um, there's yet to be debris recovery on at least two of the objects um, I think one of them is suspected to be a, a hobbyist balloon from basically a hobby, literally the Northern Illinois Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade, um, which is a hobbyist uh, balloon group um, in Northern Illinois, um, said that it had a, a balloon in the area where one of these objects was shot down over Lake Huron um, that went dark um, that vaguely matched the description that was put out. But as far as the objects that were shot down over Yukon and uh, Alaska are concerned, there have not been any debris recovery um, details that have been yielded yet. I think they, in the case of Alaska, they actually already abandoned uh, the search, citing bad weather. And in the case of Yukon, the Canadian government's not released anything yet. So we're actually not quite sure. So the details are kind of scant. 
So there have been other, like, as you said, uh, unidentified UFOs shut down in other parts of the world. But as you mentioned, part of the reason the United States waited to take down the balloon off the coast of North Carolina was recovery of, like, the mm -hmm. equipment going on and things like that. Has there been recovery efforts with these other objects as well? Yeah, there have, um, but they're a bit lackluster to say the least. The, probably the most interesting one is the one over Lake Huron where they cited choppy waters and bad weather um, as the reason that they couldn't recover debris in an in, inland lake. Um, having grown up in Chicago, I'm familiar with how stormy the Great Lakes can get, but you know we have Navy diving teams and it's you know it's not that big a search area. It's pretty condensed, so you know some skeptics claim to cover up, blah blah blah. Um, but there, there are definitely some questions as far as the recovery efforts are concerned. They basically just cite bad weather or inhospitable, inhospitable terrain. You know, like we don't have helicopters or unmanned aerial vehicles that can search these sites. You know, so a lot of question marks for sure. And you wonder if that's intentional to a certain extent. Point. Points of interest. Of course, you mentioned that uh, there's a lot of questions to do this. There might must be some sort of public reaction because when there's questions, of this people can react with the wide variety of different reactions. Yeah, this has been interesting to watch. Um, I mean, I think anyone browsing the internet um, over the last, or probably you know, two weeks uh, since this has been recorded, has seen a variety of different takes on the internet. You know, you have people who are saying, oh, these are just more Chinese spy balloons. Some people are saying these are high-tech Russian or Chinese drones. Some people saying they're aliens. Um, you know, other people are saying, well, they're not necessarily extraterrestrial, but they're just happen to be quite literally unidentified flying objects that indeed fly. Um, there's other people who claim it's a, you know, a psychological operation on the part of uh, the intelligence community um, and the federal government to distract from environmental um, catastrophes, particularly in East, you know, East Palestine, Ohio, with the big train derailment. Um, other people saying they're birthday party balloons, and other people are saying it's trash that's flying around at 40,000 feet. So, you know, a lot of guesses, you know, not, mm -hmm. not too much substance. And I know you had something you wanted to speak out about, Aya, about similar instances of Chinese balloons or things like that and unidentified or flying objects. Yeah, so um, there were similar balloons that appeared in uh, Japan back in 2020. They weren't shot down, but it wasn't until after American officials kind of confirmed that they were like Chinese spy balloons that had been sent to the U.S. Um, and Japan sort of began talking about what to do if another one appeared because they saw how the U.S. responded to it and they saw that the U.S. was more alarmed about this, where they, was, they, where they were like a bit more calm and didn't really know how to approach the situation, so they kind of just used the U.S. as an example. Mm -hmm. um, and I do want to go into more what you had, what you kind of started on earlier, Aya, about the Asian response to the incident, in particular like officials in Asia. Do you want to go any more into that? Yeah. So China had come out with a statement afterwards saying that that the balloon was not meant to be in the U.S. and that it was just kind of like flew there by accident and that the balloon was actually for weather research um, where and then the U.S. thought it was a spycraft, obviously. And this sort of like pushed countries back into a diplomatic distance and which forced like which just kind of led to um, more tensions between the two countries. And where was it here? It's a uh, this balloon said like it brought another wave of disappointment and fear to a region uh, whose security and prosperity are especially vulnerable to flare-ups between the two superpowers. And it just kind of just sparked another problem for the U.S. and China. And instead of dealing with the problems that they already have, it kind of just increased and made it more of a problem for both of the countries. Well, we're getting closer to the end here, guys. We've got about five to six minutes left. And I wanted to just ask some, like, overall final thoughts of the questions. 
both just to kind of summarize our earlier information. Um, first, I wanted to ask, what does this mean for the future of the U.S. and Chinese relationship? Um, and then we'll get into your personal takes on the whole situation later. But I think I'll come first to you, Kieran, on that. Of What do you think this means for the future between the two powers? Yeah, I mean, so there's two things to note. Um, obviously, looking at the, you know, the um, event in a vacuum, right, it's, you know, clearly part of a, you know, it's clearly moving in the wrong direction as far as U.S.-China relations go. And looking at it in kind of the broader context of the last six to eight months, you know, it's part of a chain of escalatory events between the two countries um, involving their militaries and their, their kind of political apparatic or apparatchiks. Um, but, you know, I wonder, and I'll, I'll pose this question to you, um, Aya, is are U.S.-Chinese economic and political ties, more economic, so tight that U.S.-China relations can only, they'll fray, but they can only fray so far. They'll never fully break. Because, I mean, you've seen in the U.S., right, um, the, the Overton window on being, like, more standoffish to China is very mainstream now, right? It's part of the normal political discourse of both parties. But do you think those economic ties are so deep and interlinked that it's not impossible but very difficult to fully kind of break that rope, right? It might fray a little bit from time to time with these sorts of events, or what are your thoughts? I mean, yeah, because, like I said earlier, the the U.S. and China are both, like, huge countries and they both have so much power and I think they both recognize that like they can't ever be on complete bad terms or completely break off from one mm -hmm. another when it comes to like economic situations any situation really because they know it's both in their favor to be on good terms with one another or at least like communicate when it comes to like what's best for both of their countries and best for both of their people so I believe that like despite all the situations that they have going on or despite the tensions that I mean the tensions are always going to be there obviously because mm -hmm. I feel like it's just a power thing or a power struggle but I feel like they both know that it's best for both of them to be at least on decent terms with one another so knowing that I wanted to get both of your personal takes on this situation of what do you think this means do you think this incident has been overblown to a certain extent because there's been public media attention on that um, do you think it signals a change in the relationship um, I'll come to you first for that Kieran yeah, you know, I think um, all the questions that are raised in the particular parts of the story are actually more interesting um, and say a lot more about um, the, the kind of the broader strategic and political situations um, than, than the act of, of the balloon flying over here itself. Um, clearly, that's not a new thing. They've been taking pictures of sensitive installations since they had satellites in a low Earth orbit. We've been doing the same thing. That's not new, right? It's, it's really, you know, this espionage game is always going on it's just very hush-hush, right? So for once, it's seeing the light of day, and I think people are freaking out a little bit um, about it. You know, it's a little bit of a, um, a norm break where everyone's freaking out, um, but it's, you know, fairly routine. I'm not saying that it should happen, but, you know, it, what, what is normal is normal, right? But I think, you know, you have, it says a lot about media. You see the attention diverted all towards this balloon and not toward, you know, a, <laughs> a massive environmental disaster in East Palestine and Ohio, which, like, is catastrophic to a scale that even the EPA doesn't know yet, right? Um, so there's, a, you know, it's interesting to see where attention um, gets moved to. And then you have, like, you know, the, the details of why are we shooting down balloons with $400,000 missiles instead of just using, you know, those, those, those um, F-22s, which are fifth-gen fighters, which shot down these balloons, um, have, have a gun as well. It's 30 millimeter. It's a lot cheaper. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper than a sidewinder, right? So there's defense spending questions. There's questions about NORAD and its um, readiness. 
And, you know, there's there's questions about U.S.-China relations, of course, that we've been digging into all episodes. So I think those details are almost more important and more interesting than the um, act of shooting down the balloon itself. I find it interesting you bring that up, Kieran, of, like, the questions that are brought out of this incident rather than any takeaways to a certain extent. And it kind of reminds me of, like, other incidents back when the United States and the Soviet Union were engaged in the Cold War of there's always this high-level espionage going on between the two, but it's not, there wasn't, there was no freedom from major incidents there, too. There's the U-2 incident and things like that that kind of brought it to the public attention and raised a lot of questions about the relationship between yeah. the two. Yeah, it was kind of an informal agreement between all the parties involved that, you know, just, it's fine if you do it, just, you know, keep it under the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think of this, Aya? Um, I feel like, a lo- like Kieran said, a lot of this has been going on for, like, several years, obviously, but I feel like it mostly has to do with a lack of trust from both parties. And most of the time, like, situations like this get blown out of, I don't want to say blown out of proportion, but it can be dealt with a little bit better if there was better communication between both parties. Because I feel like the whole lack of communication, lack of trust thing, is what leads to a lot of these problems, a lot of these situations getting, like, to the point where they, like, become these huge global uh, situations. I I think um, what you're getting at is working toward getting out of that trust deficit. Right, that's really being built up between the two countries over the number of years, you know. But how we get out of that, how long that takes, what the time scale looks like, right? Those are all pretty big questions. Yeah, yeah. And it's a question of communication, yeah. to a certain extent. And as you mentioned earlier, Kieran, there's been a lack of that to a certain extent, which may have helped contribute to the buildup of tensions. Mm-hmm. Um, one last question, quickly. I just wanted to ask if either of you have any thoughts about it. Is do you think are we are moving towards a new Cold War type situation between China and the United States and? What can be done to either prevent that or what a, what's what would that entail? I mean, I would say from my perspective, the main difference between this and the Cold War, we were not as economically interlinked with the Soviet Union as we are with China. So they're, like, from the get-go, fundamentally different situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think this has been a great discussion. Kieran, Aya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Drew. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news reefer, Christian LaFond. Hi, Christian. Hey, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show. So what headlines do you have for us this week? First, we have Nigerians voting in the presidential election. We also have Ukraine marking one year since the start of the invasion. And we have El Salvador beginning transfers to mega prisons amid gang crackdown. Lots of important stories to cover then. Let's start with the elections in Nigeria. Nigeria recently concluded an election that will determine the president of the country for the next four years. Nigeria, a two-party system since the end of military rule in 1999, had three different major candidates vying for the People's Vote. The Labour Party and the People's Democratic Party have vowed to challenge the official results that proclaimed the All-Progressive Party and its candidate, Ola Tinubu, President of Nigeria. An important democratic milestone for the nation, but one sure to have repercussions. And you mentioned the anniversary in Ukraine? The capital city of Kyiv hosted a military parade to commemorate the occasion of one full year since Russia launched an invasion of the nation. At the ceremony, President Zelensky honored fallen soldiers and reiterated his belief that they will do everything to gain victory. The war, which has led to the deaths of an estimated number of at least 100,000 Ukrainian citizens, continues with a little end in sight. And it seems that the conflict will continue to persist and escalate. And you mentioned there was news in El Salvador? 
Yeah, El Salvador is currently in the process of moving thousands of alleged gang members to what is being referred to as a mega prison. The move, which comes amidst some massive and somewhat controversial crackdown on crime, is aimed at eliminating the problem of gang violence in the country. To aid in this process, the president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, has recently asked his allies in Congress to suspend some constitutional privileges for the citizens of the country. This includes warrantless arrests and no right to legal counsel. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Christian. Thank you, Drew. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. The show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine Delion, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producers Andrew Kulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.